I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. I'm hoping that you're enjoying listening to the podcast. As always, if you're finding the podcast helpful in your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to it. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me invite you to get in touch about the podcast if you have comments or questions or suggestions. And don't forget that you can hear the audio version of this podcast wherever you get your audio podcasts, and the video version is on YouTube. The New York Times columnist Ross Douthat recently published an article titled, Where Does Religion Come From? In the previous episode, I gave a summary of the article and then considered it in some more depth. If you've not listened to that episode, you might want to listen to that first before listening to this one. Douthat raises an interesting question, though I suspect that he didn't fully appreciate just how problematic such a question really is. Here I'm going to pick up where we left off. In the episode titled, What is Religion?, I noted that most basic, the most basic and ancient concept of religio, that's the Latin term, is about being scrupulous. To be religious in the sense is to have a strong sense of moral obligation to oneself and to others, and also to act on that obligation. As I pointed out, the earliest definitions of religio have nothing to do with gods or the supernatural or the afterlife. The philosopher Emmanuel Levinas argues that the most basic form of religion, what he would term originary religion, is the recognition of the other as having a moral claim on us. One could put this in terms of an ultimate other, God or someone or something similar, but Levinas simply wants to say that the most basic religious act is recognizing our obligation to the other and then acting upon that recognition. On this account, the human other is sacred. I have a duty to the other. In this case, religion simply comes from the other existing. If you heard the episode on football as a particular species of religion, you probably remember that the French sociologist Emile Durkheim sees religion as composed of beliefs and practices that work to unify a group together into a single community. Durkheim thinks of human beings as homo duplex, since we are able to have both a sense of the individual self and also a sense of being part of a communal whole. Given the way religion functions, if we want to understand religion, we can't merely study lone individuals. As we've seen, religion is about the sacred. That makes religion sound like it's only concerned with what it considers to be holy, and most Christians assume holy equals God or something like that. Actually, I should point out that this is a pretty widespread assumption in Western culture. Yet the reality is that, yes, the sacred can be about God, but it can just as easily be about various other things, some of which could be good, and perhaps some would be not so good. When we take something to be sacred, we naturally find ourselves connected to some degree or another with other people who find that same thing or set of things to be sacred. Remember what we noted in Durkheim's text, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life. While he considers, for instance, the idea that religion is about the supernatural, he rejects that idea precisely because, as a concept, the supernatural is relatively recent. You can only have a sense of the supernatural if you already have a definition of the natural. 
But otherwise, we in the West are able to speak of the supernatural as a distinct phenomenon, since we have a pretty firm sense of the natural, that is, whatever is material and follows the laws of physics. But that distinction only goes back a few hundred years. Before that, Christians would not have made any strong distinction between the natural and the supernatural, because they saw the two as inextricably linked together. Durkheim likewise rejects the idea that religion is about the divine because, as we've seen, many religions don't have a concept of divinity. But even more important is that he reminds us that even in religions that do have some concept of divinity, many aspects of those religions have little or nothing to do with deities. One example he gives is the prohibition in the Hebrew Bible against mixing types of cloth together, such as weaving cotton and wool together. To quote him, it is impossible to see what role belief in Yahweh could have played in these prohibitions. In other words, it's hard to see why Yahweh would have cared about something so far removed as the mixing of fabric. He's not saying that Yahweh couldn't have been interested in such a thing. Instead, he concludes that such a prohibition most likely came about for other reasons. Incidentally, most evangelicals are very concerned about our sexual lives. Sexual sins are seen as being of a different order from the we might say, usual ones. But I've long wondered why God would be so concerned about who is having sex with whom. Of course, I'm being a bit facetious here. You don't have to spend much time considering what Jesus says to realize that he's far more concerned about justice for the poor and for those who are marginalized by societies. Here's my thesis. I suspect that evangelicals focus so much on sex as a way to avoid facing the things that Jesus says about the poor. It's much easier to teach a gospel that's focused on sex than it is to try and live a life of social justice. Indeed, back when I was at Wheaton, one of the leaders at Wheaton, I won't name this person, actually took aim at students who talked about social justice since he didn't believe that Jesus was concerned with such things. Durkheim believes that, I'm now quoting, religious phenomena fall into two basic categories, belief and rights. Accordingly, he comes up with the following definition of religion. A religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things, that is to say, things set apart and forbidden, beliefs and practices which unite into a single moral community called a church, all those who adhere to them. Of course, Durkheim wrote this at the beginning of the 20th century in the context of French Catholicism. Today we would point out that although Christians used the concept of church, which by the way was a concept borrowed from ancient Greek society that had to do with citizens meeting together to make decisions about their community, other religious groups use different concepts and speak in different terms about their community. We talked about Douthat's idea of having a personal religiosity, but he also speaks of organized religion. Alas, it would have been so helpful if his article had tried to make some kind of distinction between the two. To give him credit, he does say that organized religion, and I'm quoting, mostly reflects the societal need for a unifying moral metaphysical structure, a shared narrative, a glue to bind a complex society together. But he doesn't explain how the personal sense of religion fits with this organized sense of religion. Are the two vastly different things, or do they connect in some way? It's not helpful to introduce a distinction that isn't actually defined. What's the difference between personal and organized religion? 
And by the way, if there are so many people living Christianity, does that mean that they've merely left the organized version of Christianity, or have they simply left Christianity altogether? There's a further problem. Having already shared one reader response, let me turn to another, which comes from Bruce Crabtree in Los Angeles. He writes, Yes, organized religion has evolved and does some good in the world now and then, but if you're going to write an essay about where religion came from, you can't ignore that it was and is a dandy way to control people. This comment gets at the animating question behind Douthat's essay. Douthat's answer to where does religion come from is that we were given Christianity. But this point is not at all immediately clear. Really? We were just given Christianity, fully formed, and the same today as it was two millennia ago? Let's just say, for the sake of argumentation, that Jesus' appearance on earth was some kind of revelation. To be sure, if Jesus was just a Mediterranean peasant, there is no question that he had teachings that were arresting. So, we can talk about what Jesus teaches in terms of what we have been given. But note that Douthat talks of being given Christianity. I find it implausible to the, in the extreme to think that somehow Christianity was a gift from God or from the universe. In other words, Christianity is clearly a creation, something created by human beings. One can take the view that Christianity's development was overseen by the Holy Spirit, but it would be hard to argue that Christianity was simply given to us. Such a view is incredibly passive, Somehow, Christianity just arose on its own. That's the kind of view that my interest students often had. They assumed that Christianity had somehow just fallen from the sky fully formed. When they were exposed to the history of the canon and the fact that many Gospels didn't get included in that, they started, though only barely, to realize that Christianity was somewhat of a cons construction. While Christianity is partially the result of reading Jesus' teachings, there's so much more at work in Christianity. As I've pointed out, you could actually believe all the metaphysical bits. Jesus is the Son of God, the Father and the Son are, with Jesus part of the Trinity, etc., etc., and still not take Jesus' teachings seriously at all. While I don't want to dwell on this point, most evangelicals are particularly interested in what Paul says, and sermons in evangelical churches tend to be largely focused on Paul's letters. In practice, this often means that Paul's more restrictive ideas regarding women have much greater weight than the far more open and egalitarian teachings of Jesus. But again, even if we say that Paul's letters and the Gospels were given to us, the reality is that various Christian expressions or denominations or groups place varying emphasis on the views expressed in these books, as well as having pretty significant differences as to what all of this means. Of course, it's not simply a matter of Paul versus Jesus. At some moments, Paul seems just as open as does Jesus, such as when Paul says that in Christ, the distinctions of male and female, slave and free, and Jew and Greek make no difference. But I should point out that in my experience in the evangelical world, this was not a particularly well-emphasized doctrine or conception. I suspect this was partly due to the fact that if one takes Paul seriously, then racism is simply unacceptable as is misogyny. In any case, it would be too much to say that Christianity has simply been given to us. Not surprisingly, many of the 1.6 thousand comments on Delphat's article have a very different answer to the question of where 
religion comes from. For someone with the handle oraculum ancient, the answer to the where is fear, ignorance, hatred of the other, and insecurity. I don't think that anyone could suggest that fear isn't an aspect of religion. Here it's worth considering what Bertrand Russell had to say about the origins of religion. Religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the unknown, and partly, as I've said, upon the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder if cruelty and religion have gone hand in hand. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for imaginary sports, no longer to invent allies in the sky. One of the commentators who goes by the handle, see things clearly, provides part of that quote from Russell, and then goes on to say that he or she believes that the origin of religion is fear plus the urge for psychological, economic, and political power. I'd love to say that these last three things aren't part of the story of religion, but it's amply clear that they are. I found that evangelicals were generally uncomfortable with Michel Foucault's emphasis on power, but I've long seen that discomfort as the recognition that Foucault is getting a little too close to the truth. My own view is that one simply cannot avoid the aspect of power, so it's best to recognize that it is always present. And it's helpful to realize that Russell is right. Fear often leads to cruelty. I've said before that if you think you are doing God's will, almost anything can be justified. When you add fear into that mix, it's not hard to see that fear often causes people to lash out at those who are perceived to pose some kind of threat. Someone going by the name, and this is going to be hard to pronounce, Jebediah McScrugelata, claims that religion is an outdated tool and we should discard it. But too many people stand to gain money and power from it. These themes of money and power are mentioned by many respondents. Diana from Washington writes that religion is about control, power, and money. DLN, who is from northern Illinois, writes that religion is a tool to provide grifters scamming the flock of their hard-earned cash. And even better, it's tax-free money for those who can really preach grift. I suspect that the majority of people who become pastors and priests do not have financial gain as their main motivator. One reason for thinking that is that making money in the ministry is harder than it looks. Yes, there are extremely charismatic figures, often on television, that have the power to charm people who probably don't have that much money on hand to hand over whatever they have to that preacher on television. But it would be unwise to assume that these people are typical. Not everyone in ministry has the skills to part people from their money. Not everyone in ministry has that as a priority. I've gotten to know many people who trained to become priests and pastors, and the financial motive was noticeably lacking in most of them. The difficulty in answering the question of where religion comes from is that these kinds of answers, money, power, control, etc., cannot simply be discounted as unimportant or not part of the equation. And here we come to a tendency that I see on both sides of this question. We've spent time considering how religion played a role in human evolution, 
It appears at this point that religion helped provide the environment for a community to develop. I don't want to repeat that argument here, but I think the case made by Nicholas Wade in The Faith Instinct and David Sloan Wilson in Darwin's Cathedral is a compelling case, namely that the kind of cooperation, the development of a coherent community, and shared moral sentiments that religion provided made it possible for us to evolve as social creatures. Obviously, one of the questions that can be asked in this regard is whether we still need religion and whether we could do without it. But the answer to a question like this needs some nuance. It may well be that certain organized religions have reached the end of their useful life, though I'm still trying to figure out how to answer this question. I suspect that if Christianity, of whatever variety, is to continue to exist, it's probably going to take a somewhat different form. Put otherwise, the idea of expecting people to turn up on a Sunday morning is increasingly problematic, not least because there are so many other things to do with a Sunday morning. But if religion is what binds us together, then it's hard to imagine us getting to a place where we as a society no longer need binding together. Given the state of the world, such binding would seem particularly important now. Further, the question of whether the kinds of religions that we've had up until now will be sufficient to guide us in the future is a very open one. But what I hope you'll see is the answer to the question, where does religion come from, is not merely reducible to power or money or control. And yet these things cannot be said to be merely absent. Let me put this another way. Douthat's understanding of where religion comes from is that it has been given to us. I've suggested that even if we believe that Jesus provides special revelation, that can't possibly mean that Christianity miraculously arises from that revelation alone. There are just too many aspects of Christianity that have clearly come from somewhere else. So the merely passive, it has been given, just won't work as an origin story. But again, that doesn't mean that everything is reducible to money or power. A different point is made by Gloria B. of Lincoln, Nebraska. She writes, Religion is and has always been a human construct. Only humans have souls. Only humans go to heaven or hell. Because humans have big brains, we can make up these stories. Because we are fearful fowls, we believe them. The simple truth is that we are all animals after all. Dogs, elephants, birds, and tigers don't have religion. We are no different except for our larger brains. Her point that religion is a distinctly human thing is, I think, worth considering. She is certainly correct in saying that our big brains have allowed us to think in terms of narratives. Of course, that this is the case doesn't do much to prove that religion is merely human in origin. At best, it provides evidence for such a claim. The commentator who goes by the handle GWE provides a similar but more decisive analysis. This person writes, Religion is a made-up fantasy based on zero facts. But this claim is far too sweeping. I think most religious believers think that there are actually some facts that are part of their belief. They may, of course, be completely and utterly wrong in thinking that. But I don't think most religious believers of the Christian variety think that their commitment is just simply baseless. But this comment certainly gets at the point that those on the scientific side tend to think this sort of thing about all religion. In other words, it's based on nothing. Yet here's what's so interesting about his or her comment. 
he or she goes on to say the following. Respect the planet. Respect animals. Respect all people. Try and understand different perspectives. Don't cram your beliefs or approach on others. Be kind. Be gentle. Leave the world more welcoming and inclusive than you found it. There. That is all the religion you need. I think Jesus could have said all of that, and as a kind of synopsis of his teachings, this is fairly accurate. But of course, this way of defining religion is completely different from that of either Douthat or Hitchin, both of whom define religion in terms of belief rather than in terms of an everyday practice. To be sure, there are those whose comments seem to side more with Douthat than against him. Dairy Queen of Cleveland writes, writes that religious truths, and here's where the quote begins, are not to be arrived at through rational argumentation, but through divine revelation. If you are not open to receive any revealed truth, you are limiting your access to knowledge. You may very well live merrily with your one-eyed perception of the world, but you would be fooling yourselves to be sure that's all there is to it. You would also be exceedingly presumptuous to conclude that people of faith do not have access to the joy and clarity of rationality. I think this is a remarkably thoughtful statement. To conclude that religious believers are simply irrational is indeed exceedingly presumptuous, though this is the thrust of both Dawkins and Hitchens' views. Note that on this analysis, religion and rationality are at war with one another. You have to choose one side or the other. If you choose religion, you cannot have rationality. If you choose rationality, you cannot have religion. Well, I can imagine some religious believers might actually accept and even revel in this dichotomy. Most religious believers simply wouldn't agree with this all-or-nothing choice. An even more dichotomous kind of comment comes from someone named Tony Bickard in Anchorage, who writes that, and here I'm quoting, some sort of sky daddy whipped up the universe in exchange for money and a promise from the faithful to abort their critical thinking skills if they ever had any. That's where religion comes from. Again, I think this caricature of religious folks is truly unfair. I have no doubt that there are probably lots of unthinking believers, but suggesting that anyone who has religious belief has simply given up their critical thinking skills is kind of harsh. Someone who goes by the Viceroy explains that religion is, and again I'm quoting here, is just a cage to imprison the mind, forcing it to reject clearly observable facts, think critically, and ask questions. I've read the quote as written, though I'm assuming that this person means that religion causes people to stop thinking critically and to stop asking questions. Again, I have no question that for some people, the effect of their religion is precisely that. My objection, though, is that this is a sweeping generalization that is, I think, not completely warranted. Another sort of comment seems based on the distinction between religion and spirituality. Someone identifying as B. Champ of Quebec City writes that spirituality is pure. Embrace it. Religion is artificial. Reject it. What's unclear is exactly what this distinction between spirituality and religion is supposed to be. Obviously, this person thinks that religion is an artificial construct, though it would be helpful to know exactly how religion differs from spirituality. Perhaps spirituality is undirected and unconstrained, whereas religion is like a cage, to quote the previous commentator. Warner John of Lake Catherine, New York, suggests that to find the roots of human spirituality, look to the mystics past and present. There couldn't be more difference between religiosity based on faith or belief 
and a spiritual life of direct experience. That's the end of the quote. I find this to be a particularly interesting comment, since it takes mystical experience very seriously, and then contrasts that with religiosity based on faith or belief. Thus, the distinction here isn't between science and faith, or reason and faith. Instead, it's about the directness of first personal spiritual experience. Similarly, Amelius of Los Angeles writes that religion arises from ambitious men partially understanding the wisdom of a spiritual teacher as a source of power rather than an opportunity for shared understanding. Spirituality arises from within for sharing. While the contrast here isn't perfectly drawn, it is still very nuanced. On this account, religion is partially, I wonder if the writer actually means primarily, about power, whereas spirituality is about sharing, in which the dynamic of power is greatly diminished. On a different but very strongly related note, Dr. Smith of Washington says, Religion is the weaponization of spirituality. Religion promises answers to all of your questions. What makes this comment so interesting is the contrast the writer draws. He or she says that spirituality, now I'm quoting, is a hard road. Be spiritual all you wish. It's a hard path, as I said. Religion is the easy path for those who want answers without tears and who wish to enforce those answers on others. Although I don't think the dichotomy is quite as clear as this, I strongly agree that religion can often be reduced to pat formulas and easy-to-follow instructions that avoid the sheer difficulty of developing as a spiritual person. Such people could be defined as religious but not spiritual, people who claim to be part of a religious group or tribe but don't actually do the hard work of living out those teachings. One particularly interesting response to Douthat's question about religion comes from Wayne Arnold of Boulder, Colorado. He writes, and it's a longer quote, My imagination knows no bounds. I will entertain any idea, philosophy, or belief system, but I have no need for an answer. I have no need for meaning. I'm willing and content to live in the question. That, in my opinion, is far more interesting and free of the controlling of Christianity. It is outrageous to equate secular with decadent, especially considering the depravity of any and all Christian churches and denominations. To say that our civilization is the beautiful fruit of Christianity is just plain wrong. There's something remarkable and truly admirable about this comment. The writer is willing to explore various possibilities, but doesn't need a firm answer or some kind of meaning in order to make his life complete. I have to say, in addition, that his point that secular does not equal decadence is an important correction to doubt that, who often accuses non-believers of decadence. I suspect that Douthat has probably read some Nietzsche, but equally probably doesn't have any idea that Nietzsche thinks that many religious believers are the ones who are decadent. As to Western civilization be the fruit of Christianity, it turns out that Arnold is wrong here. Although one could never say that the West is simply the fruit of Christianity, the contribution by Christianity is so huge that it's hard even to see just how deep it even goes. And this leads me to my final comment on Douthat's essay. Remember that he talked about atheist materialism, that's his phrase, as the other to Christianity. Given the way Douthat has set up this dichotomy, it would appear that atheistic materialism and Christianity are about as far away from one another as possible. 
But the reality is that the Enlightenment involved taking many Christian ideas and putting them into secular language. In other words, the idea that outside of Christianity there are no Christian ideas or Christian ideals ends up being a significant misunderstanding of how Christianity gets transmitted, even in secular circles. Alas, one would think that Delphat would get that. In previous episodes, I pointed out that all of the culture war issues stem from Christianity. Both sides stem from Christianity. So you have the Me Too movement, which can easily be seen as an extension of the idea that human beings, including women, have intrinsic worth and deserve respectful treatment. Those arguing against the Me Too movement are often evangelicals and other religious folk who have chosen to weaponize Paul's most misogynistic-sounding words. Note that I'm trying to say as neutral as possible as to whether Paul actually is a misogynist. The same goes for the Black Lives Matter movement, which is utterly dependent upon the idea that human beings have intrinsic worth and deserve respectful treatment. Thus, as it turns out, even the most secular or atheistic person in the West has already imbibed many Christian principles. That they do not see them as having a Christian origin is precisely what has made them so powerful. And that means that the clear-cut dichotomy Delthad is trying to establish just won't work. I'll have more to say about atheism in the coming episodes, but the most important thing to say at this point is that the atheist is only one letter away from being a theist. That letter does indeed make a difference, but that difference is not nearly as great as those on both sides think. Thanks for listening to Unbecoming. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or through the PayPal app or paypal.com. The username for both of these is our email address, unbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.